Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. This past week, one of our uh, church partners um, allowed and, and paid for actually me and one of our interns named Jordan to go up to Minneapolis for some training. And uh, <laughs> Minneapolis shout out. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> And uh, it, was, it was really fun. Um, we had a really great time. We learned a lot. We rode a roller coaster in the Mall of America, which was actually kind of a big letdown, to be honest. But it, was, it went really slow. <laughs> it just did. It went slow. That's all there is to it. Um, but but it, it was a great trip. But one of the most memorable experiences for me actually happened in the airport. See, I was uh, in the Austin airport on our way to Minneapolis, and I was going through the security check, and um, I forgot to take my iPad out of my bag. And so you're supposed to take electronics, like anything bigger than a phone, out of your bag, and I forgot because I'm very forgetful. And um, so it goes through, you know, and the little things start beeping, and they're like, sir, you're going to have to move off to the side, which is like my nightmare. So I go over to the side, and... um, there's this super nice TSA agent. His name is Corey. And uh, Corey's like, hey, so uh, you just have to wait here for a little bit while we look through your bag and make sure that, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. We're going to have to scan it and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, no problem, no problem. So I'm over there off to the side and just standing there with Corey. And um, he's looking through a couple different bags, and he gets mine. And, and there's just kind of this silence in the air. And, and I realize this guy's working for free right now, you know? And, and so I asked him. I was like, hey, are you, are you working for free? And he was like, yeah. And I just said, man, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for just plugging away. I I don't know if I would do the same thing, man. And you're here and you're doing it. And man, just thank you. Thank you for working now and and for free and without any hope of resolution. And, And he said something that was so powerful to me that I actually went and grabbed my phone and wrote it down immediately so that I wouldn't forget it. He said, I have to work. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't come in and someone got hurt. I don't care how long it takes for us to get paid again. I won't stop doing my job. And as I left my interaction with Corey and made my way to the gate, I couldn't stop thinking about how different his leadership is than the leadership of some of the people in charge of our country. You see, if Corey had his way, he would get paid right? Obviously, we, would, we all want to get paid when we work. That's an important thing. It's a good thing. But not getting his way doesn't keep Corey from showing up every day to help keep people safe. Think about just how backwards that posture is from the posture of those keeping the government shut down, right? Corey is saying, I won't stop helping people even if I don't get my way. Those leading our country are saying, we won't start helping people until we get our way. Totally different. You see, Corey's leadership doesn't just differ from those leading our country. It's actually a completely different way of leading than we normally see in most areas of our society. Traditionally, we have valued leadership that is decisive, right? Leadership that is powerful, that is robust, that is loud. 
that's driven by the bottom line, that is like a no holds barred, nothing's gonna get in my way, intense, driven leadership, uncompromising and ambitious. But is that the way that God wants us to live? And more to the point, is that the way God would have us lead? At the beginning of 2019, we started this series called Finding My Place. In the first two weeks, we were finding our place in God's story and then finding our place in God's family. And both of those messages were really centered around our identity as Christians, that we are children of God and that we are under this new covenant. But this week, we shift gears just a little bit. Those first two weeks, like I said, were about identity, right? Who we are. But this week and next week is more about purpose, what we do. Now that we know who we are, we can embrace what we're called to do. First and foremost, this week we're talking about being a part of the kingdom of God. What's our role in God's kingdom? So the question we're going to answer this morning is, how do I live and lead in the kingdom of God? How do I live and lead in the kingdom of God? What's my role? What does God require of me? This can seem like an easy question on the surface, I think, for a lot of us, right? Because you just do whatever the Bible tells you to do. That's how you live and lead in the kingdom of God. And a lot of us, if you grew up in churches, you were told some version of that, right? You got that answer when you're like, what am I supposed to do with my life? How do I do this? What am, what am I called to? How do I live in a Christ-like way? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, just read the Bible. Just do what the Bible says. It's that easy. But then you pick it up, and it's this really big book. And it's complicated, and there's an Old Testament, and there's a New Testament, and there's 66 different books inside of one big book. And sometimes they seem like they don't really fit together all that well, or they're confusing. And so it's, it's, it's more complicated than just saying, well, just do whatever the Bible tells you to do. Especially because the Bible has been used to support opposing sides of most historic and modern debates. Think about that. The things that we're debating a lot in our country today and throughout the history of our world, the Bible has actually been used to push up, to propagate both sides of the argument. If it was as easy as the Bible tells me so, we wouldn't have so many people calling themselves Christians while living and leading in completely different and often contradictory ways from each other, right? If it was that easy, it would just be like, well, this is what Christians do. This is how they act. This is what they believe. This is their role. But it's not that simple, right? Because you and I, we look around and we see people calling themselves Christians who live and lead in ways that we would never live and lead. And the opposite is true too. They look at us and they say, I would never live and lead like that. I've been thinking about the way humanity leads a lot over the past week. To me, one of the most astonishing passages in all of the Bible comes at the very beginning of God's story. God creates this amazing world, and then he decides to put someone else in charge of it. It's incredible. Listen, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and govern it. Some translations say rule over it. So God makes humanity in his image and then gives us authority to rule over the perfect creation he has just finished making. 
honestly, God, it seems short-sighted. <laughs> it seems like a bad decision. <laughs> but he does. He puts us in charge. It all starts out with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? And God not only lets them rule, he actually lets them choose how they rule. That's the important part. He lets all of us rule, but he also lets us choose how we rule. They can rule God's way or they can rule their way, right? They can rule God's way or they can rule their way. And if you've heard the story, you know that Adam and Eve chose not to rule God's way. And when they did, everything fell apart. But it's not just Adam and Eve in Eden. We just saw in verse 28 that God tells them to multiply so that humanity can fill the whole earth, so that all of us can have a role, that all of us can rule, all of us can govern this creation that God has made. Humanity ruling is God's design. It's his plan. It's been his plan from the very beginning. We are image bearers of God. We are given the authority to rule. And then, just like Adam and Eve, we are given the choice of how we rule. God's way or our way. We can choose to participate in the kingdom of God or we can choose to participate in the kingdom of this world, God's way or our way. If you know the story of the Bible or just the story of human history, you know that we have, to put it nicely, a mixed history of choosing God's way or our way. Sometimes we choose God's way. And we rule with an emphasis on loving and serving each other, right? We build hospitals and schools. We grow food in sustainable ways. We harness technology and, and use it to help people in need. That's ruling God's way. It's serving people. It's loving people. But we also have a tendency to ignore God's leadership and do things our way. We do this when we declare wars on our enemies instead of working for peace, when we subjugate people for our own self-interest, when we oppress people who get in our way, and when we refuse to work with people who think differently because we want things our way. That's ruling the way of the kingdom of this world. That's ruling our way. Suffice it to say, we just aren't very good at the whole ruling God's way thing. And as we move through the story of humanity, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that we're not getting any progressively better at it, right? It's about the same trajectory. Adam and Eve's mistakes were Cain's mistakes and his descendants' mistakes and Moses and David and on down the line until all of us sitting in this room. Consistently, over and over and over, we choose to lead and rule our way. So God intervenes. He puts on flesh and he enters the story as Jesus. And this Jesus, who was both fully God and fully man, showed us what it was like to truly rule and lead God's way. He ruled by making himself a servant of all. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, to lay my life down for many. By pursuing what was best for others and by sacrificially loving, listen, not just his friends, but his enemies. He called this lifestyle of serving and loving others the good news of the kingdom of God. He told stories called parables about just how radically different God's kingdom was from the kingdom of this world. In fact, we did a whole teaching series at the beginning of 2017 about these parables and we called it upside down kingdom. 
And we named it that because the kingdom of God is so radically upside down from the kingdom of this world. When we think of the greatest kingdoms and superpowers of our day and of times gone by, a very specific image comes to our mind, right? And interestingly enough, it's almost the exact same image that came into the minds of the people living in the time of Jesus in the first century and people living in the time of the ancient Near East in the Old Testament. When humanity hears of a great kingdom, we think of a dominant military. We think of a strong economy. We think of a large territory with secured borders. We think of cultural influence over a vast kingdom, people living our way of life because it's better, so much better that everybody's just like, I want to live that way. But Jesus describes God's upside down kingdom a little differently. He says the greatest in God's kingdom is actually the weakest. He says the person who is last is actually first. That the poor and the meek and the merciful are blessed. The peacemakers, not the warmongers, are called children of God. That's how he describes this upside down kingdom. Jesus said that being a part of God's kingdom means loving our enemies. It means praying for those who persecute us. It was a completely new and completely radical way of living and leading. It was upside down. But not everyone was a fan of this upside down kingdom. Jesus is inaugurating, especially those currently in power, living and leading for their own selfish gain, living and leading their way in accordance with the kingdom of this world. The religious and political leaders of Jesus' day were so threatened by this new kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, they actually decide to have Jesus killed. Listen to me. That's how the kingdom of the world leads. I would rather murder someone than lose my power. We see that. It still happens today all the time. I would rather kill someone else than lose an ounce of the power that I've gained. And here's the crazy part, y'all. Jesus lets them kill him. He lays his life down, which, which seems like a terrible plan for someone who wants to be the king of this new kingdom, who wants the power, who wants the kingship. But what people didn't understand is that Jesus wasn't trying to take power and become king. He already had all the power. He already was king, but the kingdom was different. It was different. Letting them kill him actually allowed him to demonstrate his power and authority over the biggest threat to any kingdom, over the the greatest evil in all the world, and that is death. Now this good news of the kingdom of God gets even bigger. It gets even better because Jesus has, has beaten death. He died. He was buried three days, and just like we sang about, his buried body began to breathe again. He rose from the grave, and now he is seated in a heavenly throne as the forever king. He has all the power. He is the king. And here's where things get really, really beautiful. Because when Jesus conquered death with life by rising from the grave, he didn't just ascend back into heaven and say, figure it out on your own. He didn't just leave us and say, good luck, just just do what I did. Follow my example and and you'll be fine. He didn't do that. Jesus offers his resurrected life to us through the Holy Spirit. And he does so for two main reasons. Okay, the first one is the one that Christians and churches, we we talk about a lot, right? It's, It's Jesus gives us his life so that we can also overcome death, so that we can have eternal life. Just like Jesus says to his good friend Martha, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Like I said, this is where we talk about eternal life and all of that really important stuff. But there is a second reason that Jesus gives us his life that Christians rarely talk about. And I don't really know why, because the full life Jesus talks about doesn't begin after we die. It's not just some hope in this place in the sky that we, that we wait for and anticipate for, and we, we just buckle down and try to get through life on earth so that we can get to heaven. This full life Jesus talks about starts the moment we say yes to being a part of his family. So now, through his spirit, through his resurrected life in us, we are able to participate in the kingdom of God the same way he did because we carry his very life in us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now listen, if the life of Jesus is in us, our life should look like his. That's a convicting statement for a lot of us, myself included. If the life of Jesus is truly inside of us and we are allowing him to lead, our life should look like his life. If Jesus is the king of this new upside-down kingdom, we should live our lives like he lived his. If our question is how do we live and lead in God's kingdom, then the way Jesus lived and led is the resounding answer to that question. And we can't make the mistake of reducing Jesus to just some divine example that we read about in scripture and try to emulate. The life of Jesus in us, in us, means that if we are trusting him to lead us, our life will look like his He's not just an example. His life in us is where we get the power to lead God's way day in and day out. If you try to do it on your own, I promise it's not going to work. It's going to run out. You're going to get tired. You're going to revert back to these old ways of ruling your way and, and by the kingdom of this world. But if you allow the spirit of God, the life of Jesus in you to lead through you, you will never grow weary. You will never get tired of doing good and leading and living his way. To me, this is one of the biggest reasons the story of Jesus's life is so vital. It's so important because by looking at his life, we know what our lives will look like if we let him lead. Does that make sense? We see his life as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and we see a picture of how our lives will look if we let him lead, right? It's the same spirit in him, in us. So if we allow him to lead, our life will look like his life looked in the story of the Gospels. So how does his life look? How did Jesus live and lead? Now we could pick tons of different stories to dive into and to parse and to look at and, and to make a determination to answer that question. And, and I think you should do that. As you read scripture this week and in the coming weeks, I would love for you to look through the life of Jesus and be able to see it as this is what my life will look like if I let him lead. But for the rest of our time together this morning, I want to look at actually a summary statement Jesus made about how he lived and led and how we are supposed to do the same. It's found in John 15. So you can turn there. The verses will also be on the screen. You can go there on your phone if you want. Let me set this up for us. So Jesus is sitting around the dinner table, this Passover meal with some of his closest friends the night before he would be betrayed and then taken to the cross to die. 
He knows that this is one of the last times that they'll all be together. So he is making some really important statements. In fact, this teaching time is where he says some of his most iconic things, things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This passage that we're about to look at is lesser known, but it's just as, if not more important, I believe, for our lives today. John 15, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, if we just stopped here, it would seem like there are a bunch of commands Jesus is requiring of us in order to remain in his love, right? He's like, I love you, love me back. If you want me to keep loving you, obey my commands, right? I've actually heard it taught this way. It feels transactional, right? You do all these things for me and then you get to remain in my love. When I've heard it taught like this and it stops right here, it's so that the pastor can insert whatever command he really likes or it's kind of his pet command right into this. So it's something like if you follow the command to never get drunk, you will remain in the love of Jesus. If you follow the command to, to let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth or obey your parents or refrain from sexual immorality, then you will remain in the love of Jesus. But thank God he doesn't end the passage right there. Jesus makes this command he is requiring his disciples to follow abundantly clear. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. His command is simple. It's pointed. It's easy to remember. It's hard to do. Love each other. Now, this wouldn't have been brand new information for the disciples, right? Because they had already heard Jesus say that all of God's teaching, all of his law, everything that he said boils down to love. You remember this story, Matthew 22, somebody said, teacher, they were talking to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. The law and prophets was a way to group the entire Old Testament together. Everything that has ever been revealed before me, Jesus says, I'm going to sum it all up for you. Love God, love each other. That's what I'm asking you to do. And when the person asking the question tries to get cute, and they're like, wow, who's really my neighbor though? You know, is it just the people living next to me? Like, can I get out of this somehow? Jesus says, everyone. And he tells a story that it's not just everyone you like. He tells a story about the people that they hated most in the world being the hero and the example of this kind of love. He says, who is my neighbor? It is every single person around you. Love is the point. Love is how Jesus lived his life and how he empowers us to live ours. In fact, in this very same time of teaching, as he's around that table with his disciples the night before he would be killed, Jesus emphasizes the importance of love yet again. John 13, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, Everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Loving people is how Jesus lived. 
It's how he empowers us to live, and it's how people will know that we are his followers. I, I want to nerd out for just a second on some of the language here because it's really beautiful. I don't want you to miss it, okay? When he says, by this, okay, the word this, when he says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples, he is using language to make a crucial point that we often miss. You see, the word this is something called a singular demonstrative pronoun. A singular demonstrative pronoun. Demonstrative pronouns are used to demonstrate something. Right? So we, we use them all the time. So like when I'm trying to teach different colors to my kids, I hold up a picture of something blue and I say, this is blue. Right? I hold up a picture of something red and I say, this is red. It's a singular demonstrative pronoun. This is what I'm talking about. This is the picture of what I am talking about. Jesus is holding up love and saying, look, this is how people will know that you follow me. This one thing. Love is the singular demonstration of Jesus' followers. It is the singular identifying characteristic of being a Christian. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love like this. And he says that you can have an answer to every spiritual question. You can have every spiritual gift. You can play amazing music. You can do everything that the church so often values. But if you have not love, you are nothing. Nothing. Love is the thing that Jesus held up and said, this is how people will know you're with me because this is who I am. This is how I treat people. Love is not one of the ways people will know we are disciples of Jesus. It is the one way. It is a singular demonstrative pronoun. And it's not just any kind of love. It's a special kind of love. It's not just like the love of like, I love pizza or I love tapas. So, you know, like it's not like that, right? It's a deep, important kind of love. It's sacrificial love. Look at how Jesus finishes this passage from John 15. There is no greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, I'm sure that this was a significant statement when they heard it around the table that night, but it got way more significant about 24 hours later when they saw him literally lay his life down for them, for his friends. He says, you want to follow me? You want to be like me? You want to identify with me? You sacrificially love people. That's what you do. So how do we live and lead in God's kingdom? We do it with sacrificial love, by laying our lives down for the people around us. I can't tell you how exactly this looks in your life, but I can tell you what it looks like in the lives of some of the people that I know. For Corey, the TSA agent, sacrificial love looks like showing up day after day, week after week without getting paid so that he can help people stay safe. For my friend Janine, it means opening up a house for girls who get pregnant while living on the street so they can have a place to live and raise their babies and be cared for and be loved. For Eddie and Jeremiah from Nineveh Ministries who were up here last Sunday, it means spending their days mentoring kids who have been incarcerated and written off by the rest of society. For my friends Shauna and Courtney, it means not only taking care of their three boys, but making room for as many as three foster kids at a time in their home. For many of you, it means opening up your homes to lead a restore group, showing up early, staying late to do setup or, or production in the back, 
spending time with little kids in the room right next to ours, letting them know just how loved they are by Jesus. Giving up a night of the week to practice like our band does so we can lead people, our church family, into worship. It means standing at the doors when it's cold outside like it was this morning, right? To make sure people feel loved and welcomed and accepted no matter who they are or what they've done. And a million other ways that you all so sacrificially and selflessly love our church family. I can't prescribe what it looks like for you, but I bet, I bet you already know. I bet it's coming to your mind right now. Because, listen, we don't always know exactly what to believe about everything. We don't always know what to say. We don't always know how to process everything. But we almost always know what love looks like, don't we? We almost always know what love requires of us in any given situation and interaction. When we are around people this week and, and for the rest of your life, we should be asking, what does sacrificial love look like here? Not exactly what am I supposed to say or exactly what am I supposed to push them toward or what advice am I supposed to give them or, or how much money am I supposed to give? Like it's, it's, what does sacrificial love look like here? That's it. It's simple, but I promise it will absolutely change and transform the way that you live and lead in this world. I want to leave you with a verse that God brings to my mind so often throughout each day as he gently reminds me to sacrificially love the world around me. Paul is a guy who is famous in scripture, right? The apostle Paul, he started a bunch of churches all over the Near East right after Jesus was resurrected. And he would, he would travel around starting these churches, giving them advice, raising up leaders, and he would go on and he would do it again. But he stayed in touch with a lot of these churches. He coached them, he mentored them, and he primarily did this through writing letters. He would write letters back to them. They would write letters to him, say, here are the problems that are going on. Can you help us? And he would coach them and send them a letter back or send them a friend back or go visit them again. And these letters were, were so important to these early churches that they became a major part of the Bible, the same Bible that you and I hold today. It holds all these letters from Paul to these churches. One region where he started churches was Galatia. And the churches in this region struggled with a few different things, but one of the main issues Paul addresses in his letter to these people is those that are fighting over what to believe about issues of cultural morality. And a lot of these issues centered around people either adhering to the Jewish law or not adhering to the Jewish law to be a Christian. Some people believed you had to follow the Jewish law and believe in Jesus to be a Christian. And then the other side said, no, no, you can't follow the Jewish law and still be a Christian. So they were at war with each other. They weren't unified. They were struggling. And this larger argument manifested itself in whether or not men should be circumcised. That was a huge outward signal of adhering to the Jewish law in this first century. The first group believed you should be, that you had to be. The second group believed that you shouldn't be, that you really, it would be bad if you were. Paul spends much of his letter addressing this overall issue, but toward the end, he decides to put it very bluntly. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Listen, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Not one of the only things that counts, no. Not, not one of the ways people will know you are my disciples. 
The one way people will know we follow Jesus. The one way we live and lead in the kingdom of God, the only thing that counts is sacrificial love. Because when people see that in us, they will see our Savior. They will see his kingdom. They will see the beauty of the grace and hope and love that is only found in Jesus. That's our place in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the clarity from your word, the clarity from your words to the disciples, to your followers. Thank you that what you've called us to do isn't complicated, but we know that it's impossible without you. So God, be more, Jesus, be more than our example. Be more than just someone we look to as, as how we're supposed to emulate or, or actually be the power to love in us. Help us live and lead like you because it's really you living and leading through us. Help us trust you each and every day. Bring to our mind Galatians 5, 6 when we have interactions with people. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Help us love well. Help us love like you did. And help people when they experience the no-strings-attached sacrificial love that you provide them through us that they will see your beauty, your grace, your hope, your love, and that they would find their place in your family too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.